0: Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, okay? And what we're going to look at tonight is Christ in Gethsemane and at Golgotha. Uh, which is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested and then on the cross. So, and here's the way that I want to approach this tonight. Uh, Part of what the Bible says is that Jesus Christ is fully God and yet he's also fully man. And so we're going to try to see how this comes out in this passage in Mark chapter 14. So, um, Mark chapter 14, and we're not necessarily going to read every single verse, we are going to read a lot. But skip down to verse 18. And this was at the Last Supper. This was the Jewish Passover. Jesus was celebrating this with his disciples before he's going to be arrested. And so, Mark chapter 14, starting verse 18. And as they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now this is a little flash of the deity of Christ. That Jesus is fully God. Okay, Why, Why do we say it? Because... He's predicting the future. He knows what's going to happen. You see Jesus doing that here. Keep going. Verse 19, they, meaning his disciples, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is the one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So he points out Judas. He's predicting the future again. He he knows all things. He's omniscient. Even before Judas has betrayed him, he knows that it's coming. Verse uh, 22. Excuse me, verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it has been written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if that man had not been born. So Jesus is saying, listen, this has actually been planned from all eternity. What's about to happen is not an accident. It's not a mistake. I know what's coming. In fact, in some strange way, I planned it. And yet... Judas was a responsible human being who was about to make a decision that was the most tragic decision of all time. Keep going. Uh, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And he said to them, This is my, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. So this is where he institutes the Lord's Supper. When you go to church, you know, we don't celebrate the Jewish Passover anymore. We celebrate this, the Lord's Supper that he taught us. It's supposed to be symbolic of his broken body and his poured out blood in our place. Okay, now, uh, Jesus is God. He knows what's coming. He's predicting the future. In some sense, he's saying it's already been written. And I know it's been written. Because I wrote it, I wrote history before it happened. But really, for most of the rest of this passage, what we're going to be looking at is Christ in His humanity. And here's the way that I want us to think about it together, okay? Because I think a lot of times we read. In fact, I was having lunch with a guy yesterday and talking to him, and this is a guy that grew up in a good PCA church. He went to a good Presbyterian school, okay, and he's been immersed in this. From everything I can tell, he grew up in a good family. But as we were kind of talking, he's like, you know, Jesus is supposed to be God. I just don't feel like I can really identify with Jesus. You ever felt that way? As you read some of the moral examples of Jesus in the Gospels, you're like, yeah, but he's God, so he's got that on me. So, a little hard to connect with Jesus sometimes. But what I want you to see, yes, Jesus is God. So in one sense, he's very different. and, and, And seemingly far away from us. But... In just as true of a sense, he's fully man. He's fully human. And there are so many ways that we can identify with him. So as we go through this tonight, we look at the suffering and the sorrow of Jesus. I want you to be thinking about how you can identify with him and things that you might be going through in your life right now. Or maybe sorrows that you've had in your past, but they're still affecting you. Okay, so let's keep going. Uh, He has a body that's going to be broken. He has blood that's going to be spilt. He's not excited about it, as we'll see. He's like us in that way. Skip down to verse 27. Like I said, we're not going to read every single verse. Verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, he's quoting from the Old Testament, Zechariah, where God prophesied. God is saying, I'm the one that's going to strike the shepherd of my people. Everyone is like, Well, who? God the Father, when we get there, is going to be striking his own son with his own wrath in the place of us, people like us that deserved it. okay. And Jesus knows that coming, and he's not excited about it. And part of what makes it even harder is he says, I'm sitting here with 11 of my best friends now, and you're all going to abandon me. Any of you ever been through a time where you had people that you thought were really close, and then in your moment of greatest need, they bailed out on you? They said, no, no, I'm with you. I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin no matter what. But they proved themselves to be a very fair-weather friend when you really needed them. Whatever pain you've had in friendships, Jesus had it worse. I promise. Okay? Let's keep going. Skip down to verse 29. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So it's not just that he had faithless friends. He had stupid friends. (laughs) He had arrogant friends. He had mouthy friends. He had friends that talked a big game but they didn't have the ability to back it up with their life, and he knew it ahead of time. Any of y'all got a friend? Don't do a show of hands on this one, and don't, like, nudge the person sitting next to you, all right? But any of you have a friend that's, like, always running their mouth talking a big game, and you're just sitting there thinking, I know you're full of it. We've been down this road before where you talk a big game and you don't come through. It's very frustrating, right? Now, listen, if that's like Friday night plans fall apart, and you're like, no, I'm stuck alone because my friend bailed out on me. okay. Cry me a river, right? That's not the end of the world. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is about to literally go through hell on earth. And his best friends are like, no, no, we got this. We're going to be there. And he's like, no, you don't. And you're not just going to slip away, most of you. You're going to publicly deny me, Peter, the leader of the game. Keep going. Verse 31. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And it wasn't just Peter. And they all said the same. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Now the word Gethsemane literally means oil press. It was a place probably where there was like an uh, olive tree garden and they would pick the olives and they would press it to have olive oil. But in some sense, it's symbolic. Jesus is going there to be pressed with his suffering. One author writing about this said it was like as he starts thinking about what he's actually about to do, it's like there's a sense of terrified amazement. He's overwhelmed with what he has been called to do. And probably, this is a little bit of speculation, but I've heard two or three different authors and pastors say this, there probably was a sense in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Father already started, in a sense, withdrawing a sense of His blessing, withdrawing a sense of His nearness, withdrawing a sense of His smile in preparation for what was going to come on Him full force on the cross. And so, in His humanity, at the moment when Christ needed His friends the most, They're about to blow it. They're about to bail out on him. Um, Verse 33. Well, yeah. And he took with him, him, Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He's overwhelmed with so much sorrow he felt like he was going to die. Listen, when you talk about Christ in the Gospels, you have to be careful. Because if you kind of get too loose-lipped, you can almost say something blasphemous. Right, it says in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every single way as we are, yet he never sinned, he never crossed the line. So to whatever degree you can be like really concerned about something, but not actually cross the line into worry, that's where Jesus went. Does that make sense? To whatever degree you can actually be like overwhelmed with something, with sorrow, with despair. I mean, at one point he even says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. We might want to call that despair. We might even want to call that depression. It's not a sinful type of depression, but whatever kind of non-sinful kind of depression you had, he had it, and he had it in spades. He's overwhelmed. He's sorrowful to the point of death. Okay? It even physically affects him. Luke's gospel tells us that he got to a point where he was sweating and the capillaries were, were bursting, and so blood was mixed in with his sweat. Okay? Um, Look back at verse 34. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Just pause again, right? We're trying as much as we can in a godly way to put ourselves into Christ's shoes, so to speak. Have you ever felt so sorrowful you said, I just wish I was dead? Now, Probably for some of us, we have crossed that line into sinful despair, where maybe we even had suicidal thoughts. Again, Christ never crossed that line. But to whatever degree you get, like, man, my life is so bad, I'm not going to kill myself, but sometimes I wish God would just take me out, make it easier, just go straight home. He's feeling that. He's feeling that kind of pain. He's feeling that kind of pressure. Okay, Um, 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, this is a whole other side, and I don't want to get off on it, but if you ever struggle with, what's prayer supposed to look like? That. That's the best prayer in the whole Bible. Brutal honesty about your desires, and yet total submission to whatever God ordains. That's real prayer. That's real communion. That's real intimacy. But notice, I mean, th- if you're thinking, this ought to bother you a little bit. I thought we said he's fully God. I thought he would help write the plan. So, how can he be there saying, if there's another way? I've had some friends. Any of y'all ever been to the Grand Canyon before? I've never been. Anybody ever been? Okay, figured a couple people have. I had a couple friends that went to the Grand Canyon. And on the front end, they're kind of like, yeah, my wife wants to go to the Grand Canyon. I'm like, okay, but I'm thinking we're probably going to spend like 15 minutes there, right? Because like, I've seen pictures. What's the big deal? You're going to get there. You're going to see it's like a big hole in the ground. Okay. And then what are we going to do? Right? I hope they got good restaurants there. (laughs) And then like after the vacation, I'm like, how's the Grand Canyon? They're like, I was a moron. It was amazing. It was stunning. It was overwhelming. Like you get there and you just can't imagine how immense, how huge, how overwhelming it is. The pictures don't do it justice. You ever heard somebody talk like that? It's one thing to know in theory I'm going to drink the wrath of hell of Almighty God. It's another thing to walk right up to the edge and look into it and to seriously contemplate it like I'm about to go into it. And that's where Christ is. That's what He's wrestling with. That's what He's thinking about. And and C.S. Lewis had this point to say, which I thought was great. Think about in the Old Testament when God was speaking to A great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. He says, Hey, Abraham, get up tomorrow morning and go sacrifice your son. You remember how that story ends? At the very last second, like the the knife has been drawn, God says, You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. And so maybe Jesus, in his humanity, maybe Jesus, in this overwhelmed state, says, Maybe there's a way out. Maybe there's some other way. He's wrestling. Yet he's still humble. He still submits. Okay? Here's what one author said. Not my will implies no conflict between the person of the Godhead. Right? It's not like Jesus and the Father having an argument. Rather, it graphically reveals how Christ in his humanity voluntarily surrendered his will to the will of the Father in all things precisely so there would be no conflict between the divine will and his desires. If Jesus had said, I'm not doing it, the Father wouldn't have made him. The Father would have said, great. Your choice. Come home. Jesus willingly chose to go to the cross for us. I think it's in the Gospel of John where He says, "Nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down of my own accord." Okay. Another author said this: the critical factor was the Son's submission. Okay, He chose to obey. Now, verse thirty-eight. He's talking to the disciples after He's had to wake them up. Watch and pray. That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And one author pointed out, and I think this is right, that in some sense, why was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying repeatedly? Because in his humanity, he had to watch and pray. He was being tempted by Satan to abandon the cross, greatest temptation he ever faced. Listen, if he had to have a strong prayer life to say no to sinful temptation, how much more so? Do you and I need to have a regular, faithful, strong prayer life if we hope to have a prayer of really resisting sin? Because the biggest difference maybe, on a very practical level between us and Jesus and His humanity, is we do have indwelling sin. All the more that we need to be praying, asking the Lord to help us. Now, in some sense, what's happening here, this is almost like a replay of what Adam and Eve went through in the Garden of Eden. But think about where they were. They had each other, best friends. They're in paradise. Everything looks wonderful. And he says, hey, you can eat any fruit you want. Just don't eat that one tree over there. And they blew it. Sounds a little bit like me and you, doesn't it? Jesus is abandoned. He's all alone. Even though he brought his best friends, they're knocked out of sleep. They can't stay awake with him. And he's facing something terrible. But because he is God, he presses on. He's faithful. Okay? Verse 42, skip down. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. So at this point Judas, who had been one of his best friends, had been in the company of the disciples, comes to betray. You have been betrayed by one of your closest friends? Hurts, doesn't it? Didn't hurt like this. Look at verse 46. And they laid hands on him and they seized him. He's arrested. But he's falsely accused. He'd done nothing wrong. You ever been falsely accused of something? That's one of the hardest things to put up for, it? especially for Christians. We like our integrity. We know we're not perfect, but we're trying to have high character. We're trying to be strong. We're trying to be good. And then we get falsely accused of something we didn't do wrong? Doesn't this sense of like, justice rise up? I've got to defend myself. If anybody ever had a right to speak up and defend himself, it was this man. And yet he didn't. He's abandoned by all his friends. We know that's coming. Verse fifty, and they all left him and fled. They saved their own skin. Okay. Skip down to uh, well, verse 30, fifty-three. Excuse me, fifty-three. And they led Jesus the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Okay. Listen, I'm not going to read the whole trial. He's going to be falsely charged. It's a kangaroo court. It's a false trial. Falsely convicted falsely condemned, although he's innocent. They even try to get witnesses. It's like they're paying witnesses. Come in and say something bad. And they can't even get the fake witnesses to line up. Skip down to verse 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. It's like they're making him kind of walk down a gauntlet blindfolded. And these military soldiers, experts in strength and violence, just punching him in the face, making fun. Can you guess who that is? And you know what? He could have. He could have stopped and said, I know everything about you. I made you. I mean, some of you, some of us probably, have been physically assaulted, mocked, tortured. This is the suffering he goes through. Okay. Let's go to chapter... uh, Chapter 15, and down to verse 6. This is a story that probably a lot of us have heard. Just think about this. Now at the feast, this is talking about Pilate, the Roman ruler of that area, who really had power and authority from the human level. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Just stop right there. Any of you got somebody in your life, and in a sense they're making your life miserable, and the reason they're doing it is just because they envy something that you have? It's not a bad thing for you to have. It's just a good gift God's given you. Maybe of reputation, maybe of a friend group, whatever. And you got people that envy you, so they go out of the way to ruin you. Not enough to crucify him, let's whip him first. And he's rejected. There was a chance, like there was a chance at the last minute. Pilate seems like he wanted to let him go. He knew he was innocent. But the crowd says, no, no, we'd rather have the murderer. Give us that guy. Keep Jesus. Kill him. Down to verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, I'm not going to do a whole thing on Roman crucifixion. If you've probably ever been to Sunday school more than like four times in your life, you've probably heard something about it. The word excruciating that we use today literally comes from the idea of out of the cross. Proper Roman citizens, you wouldn't even talk about crucifixion at a dinner party because it was too gruesome. The pain, right? Stripped naked, public humiliation, nailed through your nerves to a piece of wood. It usually took days to die. So the birds got to come and eat on you while you were still alive. But listen, the the physical pain is just some little dim glimmer of what was going on in the soul pain. And that's what really we ought to care about most. Most. Verse 26, And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right one on his left. I mean, he's treated like a common criminal. The only innocent person that's ever lived was lynched, was tortured, was accused falsely, and treated this way. Totally misunderstood. Unappreciated. Now, Write this one down. You've probably heard it. We're not going to flip to look. But to understand what's really going on, you have to really look past the Gospels, in a sense, because later, after the resurrection, they get explained. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So just real quick, big theological word. It's imputation. God said, I'm going to take the sin of all my people and I'm going to credit it to the account of Jesus. That's what was happening behind the scenes, so to speak. And then he's going to get punished for it. So that then, everybody that has faith in Jesus, I take the righteous life of Christ and I impute it to their account and they get counted righteous by faith. They get saved, they get forgiven, they get mercy. Don't do a show of hands on this one. Anybody ever bounced a check? Okay. I'll confess, I have. Okay. That's never fun, is it, right? You look into the bank account, and it's got a little negative sign in front of it, right? And then you realize, oh, yeah, they charged you one of those overdraft fees. You had that before, right? So it's like you may have just bounced the check by, like, two cents. It's like that'll cost you 36 bucks, and then it just starts adding up, right? And next thing you know, you're like, we're in the hundreds now. We have a problem. Imagine if you were like Jeff Bezos or something, billionaire. And one day, you went to check your bank account. He probably doesn't check his own bank account right. He probably has somebody do that for him. It's what you can do when you're a bank, uh, billionaire. But he, anyway, he pulls it up, the little app on his phone. And it says like negative trillion dollars. You think he'd be having a bad day? Might say a few bad words. Here's the point. Jesus Christ not only had a sinless life of 33 perfect years on earth, He existed from all eternity in perfection, in beauty, in glory, in goodness, in purity. He never had one sinful, lustful thought. He never got sinfully angry at somebody for even half a second. He never had one moment of greed or of envy. You understand what I'm saying? And what happened to him on the cross in some sense is God took the sins of millions of people and he poured out all that moral perversity onto Christ. His spiritual bank account, so to speak, went all the way negative. In an infinite way that we can't even imagine. And yet, because of the power of his life, he's able to cancel it out. That's what was happening on the cross. He's punished in our place. Mark chapter 15, look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness. Okay, in the Old Testament, especially, darkness signifies wrath. I mean, the best understanding of this is I think one commentator said hell came to the cross that day and swallowed up Christ. It burned itself out in his heart. Jesus literally experienced hell while he was still alive hanging on the cross. History tells us that most of the Roman Empire got dark on this day at this time. That pagans as far away as Egypt reported some type of strange eclipse or something they couldn't explain. And at some level, this is showing us the darkness that was eclipsing onto his soul. Listen, usually God shows up in a cloud of light to bless his people. This is the opposite. He's coming down to condemn his own son. Okay. By imputation, he was made a sinner, and God treated him like a sinner at the bar of justice. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama Sabakathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John White says, it's an expression of agony that overwhelmed understanding. Again, in one sense, he knows what's happening. But if you ever been going through something so painful, then the moment that you might be saying, "Like, why is this happening to me? And technically, if you could kind of get your senses together, you're like, well, I know exactly what's happened to me. And usually it's because I made a really stupid decision, right? Jesus knew intellectually why, but he's so overwhelmed with the pain, the negative emotions, there's just this scream of agony. And yet also, if you go back, we won't do it now for the sake of time, to Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, Jesus is actually quoting from a psalm of David in the Old Testament, It starts really negative because David had some hardship in his life where he felt similar to this, not all the way. But by the end of that psalm, like many of David's psalms, he's at a place of joy. So as much as this is a cry of dereliction, it's also a cry of hope. It's not going to end like this. I don't know how long it's going to last, but it's not going to end. Listen to Matthew Henry. This is great. That Christ being forsaken of his father was the most grievous of his sufferings. And that which he complained most of. Here he laid the accent. He did not say, Why am I scourged? Right? He never said, Hey, why'd I get beaten up? Why'd I get lied to? Why'd I get falsely accused? Why'd I get abandoned by my friends? No, no. Why'd I get abandoned by my father? That's what he really cared about. That's what really hurt the wrath of God coming down on him. Now, as best we can tell, this all happened about the time that the daily sacrifice of the Jews would have been happening in the temple. You remember how John the Baptist introduced Jesus to his followers? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathes his last. He dies. And then verse 38, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, you've probably heard this, but in the Jewish temple, you had these different courts. And you could get closer and closer, and finally there was the Holy of Holies that was separated by this gigantic, huge, thick curtain that would have been so thick it would have almost been like a wall. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant, which was supposed to be like the footstool for God. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. It's like this is where God touches earth. And once a year one man, the high priest could go into that place but he had to do all these ritual cleansings and baths and wear certain clothes and sacrifice all these animals symbolically for his sin and the sin nation. and he'd go in there and he had little bells around the robe he would ring and, and a rope in case he did something wrong you couldn't just go in there and get the body because then you'd die too. So if the bells quit making noise. You just, oh, I guess he did something wrong. God killed him. Let's just drag him out. I mean, there was this terror to approach the living God. And when Jesus died, the terror ends for those that are in Christ. And that curtain got torn. And you know what? It got torn from top to bottom. People didn't go tear it. People didn't go fix this problem. God the Father tore it. And he tore it by tearing the flesh of his son in our place. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion, okay, again, Roman centurions were mean, bad dudes. I mean, they were trained to go into combat. They were trained to oppress people when they needed to. And they didn't do it nicely, they did it with violence. They were used to killing people and seeing people die at their hands. They were used to blood and guts and tears. You understand what I'm saying? This is not like your grandma at the cross. This is a guy well acquainted with death and violence. And yet there was something so unique about the death of Christ. Look at what he says. Verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw this, saw that in this way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of God he's vindicated and it's a gentile soldier it's not even a Jew in a sense is the first one in the gospel of Mark to say he had to really be the son of God no man lived like this no man talked like this no man died like this and more importantly no man rises like this Now, if we put our faith in Christ, we can rise with Him. But two things that I want us to think about. I think we're going to have some discussion questions, get in some small groups. But just as I close in prayer here, two things. One, at a very practical level, again. I don't know most of you personally. I don't know what you're going through. right? But we all have different sadness, sorrows, hardships in our life. And one of my favorite verses about Jesus comes from Hebrews chapter 4, and it says He's a great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. When you're going through something in your life, even if it's small and petty, Philippians 4, 6 says, in all things by prayer. You can pray about anything. The smallest, stupidest, minor thing in the world. That's how great of a Savior He is. He will care for the tiny things in your life. But, more well, importantly, the giant things that seem overwhelming, that seem unfair, that seem to wreck you, that seem to drive you to despair, depression, maybe in suicidal thoughts at times. That it stir up an internal sense of rage and justice. He gets it. He's a sympathetic God. You can take all of that to him. He understands. He's been there and done that in spades. That's one of the greatest reasons to love this Savior, follow this Savior, trust this Savior, worship this Savior. But there's one even better. See, the real problem that we all have that most of the time we're not really aware of, it's not like on the front lobe of our mind, we're not thinking about most is our sin debt. Right? We're, we're way too consumed with our problems in dating and boys and girls and money and class and jobs and blah, 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 blah. And that stuff matters but it matters pretty small compared to if you don't get right with God, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity, right? That's the biggest problem any person's ever had. And the Lord Jesus fixed it. And what do you have to add to it? Nothing! All you have to do is calm and simple faith. Calm and humble confession. I'm a sinner. I need grace. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. And genuine faith is instantaneously saving. And last thought and I'm done. When you really close the deal with Christ, so to speak, do you realize that the perspective that that ought to give you on all your other problems? Right? I just flunked out of class parents are really mad they're not paying for anything else i gotta go get a job now so who can you at least you're not going to hell could be worse right what and listen you start preaching that to yourself reminding yourself of that singing about it worshiping meditating on everything it's amazing the perspective it'll give you i'm not saying all your problems go away they just get lighter they just get smaller they just by His grace get easier to deal with and move forward in. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful to You. We're humbled before You. We're not worthy. And even in our best moments of trying to appreciate who You are and what You've done for us, it pales in comparison to the greatness of Your glory, the magnificence of Your sacrifice. I pray, Lord, for anybody hearing this, that hasn't truly trusted in you in a saving way, would you have mercy on them? And would you draw them to yourself? And God, I pray for all of us that are in Christ by your grace, that we would have joy unspeakable, even as we go through the trials of life. I pray all this in Christ's name. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.